0: Well, good morning. So good to see everyone this morning. Um, as you probably have heard already, a number of for folks are, are sick uh, with the flu or maybe other ailments. So we want to continue to keep them in mind this morning um, <clears throat> and through the week as well. In fact, I think Joshua is one of those that's not doing so well and he's going on this uh, to the Pastors' Conference, so we we really want to lift him up, uh, as well as everybody else, of course. So um, my name is Hugh, of course, and I serve on the leadership team here at SGC Midland. And I have the privilege this morning to share the word with you from John's letter, uh, and it's John Chapter 2. Last week we commenced uh, a new study in John, in 1 John, actually, and the, the title of the series is That You May Know. And we're going to hear a lot this morning, a lot more this morning about knowing and what that actually means, uh, what John is really talking about. Um, in the Gospel of John, which we concluded a couple of weeks ago, John's objective was that by the truths presented, people would come to genuine faith in Christ and in believing have life in his name. That's John 20, 31. In 1st John, his objective is to show us what the fruit and evidence of genuine belief in Christ and being truly saved is, so that those professing Christ may know, may have assurance whether or not he or she is truly saved and is following Christ. So he writes this in, in, in uh, 1 John 5.13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Last week, Pastor Billy covered all of chapter 1, and he touched uh, some on the first verses of chapter 2. And the main point, just in terms of reminder, the main point of his message was, if we walk in the light of Christ's truth and love, we have fellowship with God and with one another. In his message, he pointed out that in this letter, John identifies three distinctives, or tests you may call them, which one can use to help him or her assess and know whether or not he's truly in the faith, truly knows God is an authentic Christian, right? He stated that there's a doctrinal distinctive for authentic Christianity which reveals a right belief in Christ and Jesus. There's a moral distinctive of authentic Christianity which reveals a right obedience to Christ and his work. And there's a relational distinctive to authentic Christianity, which reveals the right love for Christ and his people. All three of these distinctives are found in the first chapter, and I think we will see them again articulated in chapter 2 of 1 John, which we're going to cover this morning. The title of today's message is, Genuine Belief in Christ is Evidenced by Love for God, Love for the Brethren and Others, and not loving the world. And we're going to also make that the main point of the message as well. I think this will become very evident as, as we read this morning and as we study this passage. So Let's go ahead and we're going to read First uh, John chapter 2. If you would stand with me, and uh, it's, a, it's a good number of verses. <laughs> So I'm glad it's not Psalm 119, <laughs> so we'll be here a while, but <laughs> um, okay, uh, let's read. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You know new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, this is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him, who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If everyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and desires of the heart, of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its, its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were, not, uh, they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not have continu- they would have continued with us. But they went out, because it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, you will have, and you will have knowledge. I, will, <clears throat> I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lies in the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the, the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, But as this abide, anointing abide, uh, teaches you about everything, and it's true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteous has been born of God." All right, these are quite a number of verses here, and uh, for this morning, um, I will not attempt to uh, explain every single verse, to teach on every single verse, but we'll try to bring out the key points which highlight the message which which John wants to get across to us. So with the reading of God's Word, let's pray, and then we'll get into the discussion. Father, these are your words that we just read, um, your, your, your authoritative inspired word, and we thank you for them. Lord, and I, I pray that, Lord, you, by your spirit, would write these words upon our hearts so that we would truly walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, and as we preach this morning, as I preach, <laughs> I pray that your anointing that John speaks of here, Lord, would abide with all of us, that we may be attentive hearers to your word, that you would open hearts to receive what you desire to accomplish in these heart today, including my heart. Help me, Lord, to deliver this in a manner that brings honor and glory to your name. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here are three points which I plan to cover this morning. <clears throat> Again, not going to cover every single verse, um, but I will allude to or touch on various things, uh, even though they may not be part of the main point, uh, main points that I'm bringing out. So, first point: and you, um, genuine faith or genuine belief in Christ results in God's love perfected in us as evidence by keeping his commandments. So that's point number one. Uh, point number two, genuine faith, genuine belief in Christ, results in love of the brethren, and others as well. <clears throat> um, and we, we, get, we see that in verses 11, 7 through 11. Uh, the first six verses uh, covers the first point. And then the third point is genuine belief in Christ results in not loving the world. And we see this in verses 15 through 19. The con- content of the three letters, and uh, I just want to give you a little bit more background. I know Billy provided some background as well last week, uh, but a little bit more. So first, second and third John uh, Uh, the style of writing and the vocabulary used seem to indicate that these letters were addressed to the same readers as the Gospel of John, um, which we finished a couple weeks ago. And examples of this include his references to Jesus being the life, and the life, right? We we saw that in the first chapter, in fact, uh, of 1 John teaching about abiding in Christ. Jesus addressing his disciples as his dear children. Where do you think John learned that from, <laughs> right? Uh, I bet he did. He learned that from, from Jesus himself. <clears throat> the new commandment to his disciples to love others as they've been loved by him. Remember again, we saw that in when we studied the Gospel of John. And, and many other examples, you know, we don't want to necessarily get into all of them here. So here's something else, though. The, the language used by John indicates that he knows the writers the readers rather intimately. Quite often he refers to them as his dear children," uh, or "dear friends," and "my brothers." Furthermore, he indicates that he belongs to their fellowship. Nevertheless, we need to understand that the content of the letter was not just meant for them, but for all believers, for you and me, uh, for our edification, our comfort, our learning, or growth, so that we can know with great assurance whether or not we are in Christ, we're in the faith, and our faith is genuine. <coughs> John's intended audience, also includes um, some heretical teachers, as we recall, it doesn't name them here, but they're the Gnostics, and other false teachers, some of whom may have already left the church, and possibly, you know, this audience also includes unbelievers, as is typical of any gathering of believers, right? Any church. Uh, This first letter indicates that the readers were confronted with erratical teachings and false teachers, and that was not uncommon among the early churches. Um, Throughout the ages, it wasn't uncommon either, and probably the same is true for today as well. Pastor Billy alluded to this last week. One of those erratical teachings was Gnosticism. So I mentioned the Gnostics a minute ago, and Gnosticism is the fusion of religion and philosophy. In this heretical teaching, great emphasis was placed on special or deeper knowledge that man can attain through his own reasoning power, which would supposedly elevate him to a higher spiritual plane. And so you understand then why John makes such a big deal and emphasizes so much about knowing him, in this, in, in this, especially in this second chapter, but throughout the letter, in fact. Um, But these people, these uh, heretical teachers, claimed that only a select few would attain the special knowledge. And those who did would have achieved so-called perfection. Those who followed this teaching accepted some of the teachings of Christ, but actually denied his deity. And again, as we read this morning, I think you saw that. Um, In denying his deity, they were essentially saying that they needed something else other than Christ to be complete. Christ was not enough. There is knowledge and wisdom out there to be attained outside of Christ that would make them more spiritual. could understand why John was not very happy <laughs> about all of that, right? So John <clears throat> makes reference in this teaching and counters it by directing his readers to the true knowledge of Christ and the anointing um, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit here when he speaks of the anointing which those who are genuinely saved have received and who leads and guides them into true knowledge. So with that little bit of background let's get into point number one. So point number one is genuine faith, genuine belief in Christ results in God's love perfected in us as evidence by keeping his commandments. We see that in 1 John chapter 2, the first six verses. In verses 3 and 4, John says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So I think a a question that should come to our minds immediately is this. What does John mean when he speaks of knowing Christ? We know a lot. We say we know a lot of things, right? We think we know a lot of things. We know this and that and all that. But what does he mean by saying, by speaking of knowing Christ? This is not speaking of knowing certain things about Christ. Such as, you know, we may know about his birth as a baby, we celebrate that at Christmas, Um, his temple experience at age 12, the fact that he did many miracles, you know, all kinds of things we could know about Christ, right? It does not mean adherence to a belief system about Christ and God, which we subscribe to, although we may learn a lot about Christ from such a system. (laughs) And those things could be a starting point which God uses to draw us into true faith and belief in Him. Knowing Christ does not mean superficial acquaintance with Him through external observances of certain rules and principles which we try to keep. But rather, knowing Him speaks of intimacy with Him through personal acquaintance with Him. It is knowledge gained through having a personal relationship, to having fellowship with him through the Holy Spirit who is given to us at salvation. So that's one of the reasons, in, in fact, in the, he says in chapter 1, right? he speaks about such personal fellowship with the Father and the Son. Chapter 1, verse 3 says, <clears throat> That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, yes. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Outside of that fellowship, we can't claim to know Him. John is telling us, (coughs) in chapter 2, verse 3, that we gain and grow in the knowledge of Christ as we keep His commandments. (coughs) So, how does that work? what we should understand that keeping His commandments is re- really the result of us walking in fellowship with Him, learning His ways, endeavoring to walk in His ways in a manner that pleases Him. Remember Jesus in, in, in Matthew 11, I think, speaks about being in yoke with Him, right? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, right? That's how we, we're in fellowship with Him. Um, In this way, keeping his commandments shows or proves that we actually know him. Uh, On the contrary, not keeping his commandments shows that we really don't have fellowship with him. And consequently, consequently, we don't know him. The only people who can genuinely know Christ in this manner are those who are born again by the Spirit. When that happens, we become a new creation in Christ with a new heart and a renewed spirit. Actually, new spirit. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of this in Ezekiel <coughs> chapter 36 concerning the new covenant which God would make with his people. You should have this in your outline. Um, so he says there, I, you know, God speaking through the prophet, will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. In other words, a soft heart, a receptive, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you To do what? To walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jeremiah actually says something quite similar in Jeremiah 31, verses 33 and 34. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my my law within them. I will write it upon their hearts. I will be their God, they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and he teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will de- forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the knowledge which John speaks of about in 1 in, in John. It does not mean that we can't or don't grow in our knowledge of Christ from the teaching and preaching of others. That's not what the the, the Jeremiah passage is saying. The Lord gifts us with many wonderful pastors and teachers and evangelists and all those people from whom we we are to learn. But it is the Holy Spirit who takes the truths they impart and writes them upon our hearts and causes us to walk in them. Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah speak of knowing Christ as the fruit of fellowship. Another question uh, we should, that should come to mind is this. So what commandments <laughs> is John referring to when he says that keeping his commandments so that we are growing in our knowledge of him? In fact, in the very next verse, he makes the statement that says, whoever says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, right? And the truth is not in him. So what commandments is he talking about? He's not speaking here specifically. Yeah, maybe when we talk, hear about commandments, you know, we hear, you know, the thing that comes to mind is, well, the law of Moses, you know, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. <clears throat> So he's not not speaking specifically of the law of Moses, which consisted of a collection of laws and commandments that were given to Moses by God and included different, you know, there was the ceremonial law, the moral law, judicial law or civil law. And many of these laws still have relevancy for Christians today. But John was speaking more about the teachings of Christ, of Jesus, essentially, the gospel, and how it applies to all areas and fears <laughs> of life. Uh, so during his earthly ministry, Jesus went about teaching the people about what life in his kingdom, why we're still here on earth, right? Uh, he's, he's teaching them about that, and how his teaching should shape our lives in everything that we do, in our families with neighbors, in the workplace, at church, um, attitude towards civil government, relationship with, towards friends, relationship you know, towards foreigners. He taught the people about genuine repentance and faith in him and so forth. And so the Sermon on the Mount is one such example of Jesus teaching the people about kingdom living now, <clears throat> which was so different not just the sermon on the mount but all of his teachings actually were so very different from what the people were getting from the religious leaders that, that day um, Jesus commandments are <coughs> uh, are not just those which he spoke directly to the people and to us as readers you know you know we look at okay Jesus commandments is the what he says the red letters in the in the bible you know but by extension it's it's to those spoken or written by the apostles and others and recorded in the pages of scriptures. Um, basically, when Jesus or John or biblical writers speak of keeping his commandments, they're essentially talking about keeping or abiding in his word or his teachings. Right? Same thing. In fact, a true disciple is one who abides in the word or the teachings of Christ. And so that's what he says in John, that's what Jesus says in John 8.32. He makes this statement to some Jews who had believed in him. He says, if you abide in my word, you are, in other words, his teachings, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Here, abiding in his word speaks of holding to his teachings and living in accordance with them. Such a person is regarded by Jesus as a true disciple, one who will know the truth and be set free by it. Knowing the truth here speaks of growing in intimacy with Christ as we walk, (coughs) uh, as we Walk those fruits out in our lives, and by so doing, such a person is increasingly set free from many things, including sin or sin patterns, selfishness, religion, worldliness, and things of that nature. So John goes on in 1 John now in verse 5, 2 verse 5, it says, Whoever then keeps his commandments in him. Truly, the love of God is perfected. Kind of an interesting statement that he makes there. And so an, another question then arises, is, <clears throat> is, is whether he is he referring to God's love for us being perfected through keeping his commandments, or our love for God being com- perfected? We know that our, our love for God is is simply a reflection of his love for us. Because we love because he first loved us. right? God's love for us is already perfect. That doesn't need to be perfected. Uh, <clears throat> um, and, uh, and our love for God is, is not perfect, though, is it? If we, we speak honestly. We're, that's something we're growing in. We're going to continue to grow in loving him and learning how to do that until the day we see him face to face. So what does he mean by perfected or completed? The word perfected or completed literally speaks to, or this is where it should be understood, in that God's love has accomplished its design or reached its end in producing obedience in us. Yep, let's say that again. Um, <clears throat> perfected, completed uh, means that God's love as accomplished is designed or reaches end in producing obedience us. See, one of the purposes of God loving us is to draw us into fellowship with him and for us to grow in Christ's likeness so that we walk in the same manner as he walked which is obedience to his Father. Right? So as we keep his commandments, as we walk in obedience to him, what's happening? His love for us is actually achieving its intended purpose in us. I hope that makes sense (laughs) to you. So, here and then, John provides another test that we could know that we're in him. God's love is being perfected in us because we're learning more and more to keep his commandments, right? And that's something that continues, that we learn more and more about until the day he comes, right? We're not going to be perfect in that and, you know, un- you know, until then. Then we'll know we- we'll, be- we'll keep his commandments perfectly at that point. But this leads then into point number two. Genuine belief in Christ results in love of the brethren. And by extension, love of others. So we see that in verses 11 through 7. <clears throat> as, a, as was mentioned earlier, um, last week, you know, last week, Billy mentioned this, there is a relational distinctive or test to authentic, authentic Christianity which reveals a right love for Christ and his people. So in these verses, John provides another test, so to speak, or what, of whether one's professed faith in Christ is authentic. It is the relational distinctive as reflected by how we relate to other brothers and sisters in the Lord, as well as unbelievers as well. Um, John makes a pretty smooth transition from a discussion about knowing God and obeying his commandments to the topic of love, particularly loving the brethren. He goes on to say that he's giving them a new commandment, But he qualifies, he says, it's really not new (laughs) since it existed from the beginning. Uh, In other words, this commandment existed under the Old Covenant. But there are some elements of newness to it which Jesus himself introduced. So, in his letter here, John is obviously referring back to Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John in which he told his disciples, "As I'm giving you a new commandment, that you should love one another as I have loved you. Right? His commandment to love one another, in one sense, was not really new. Um, in the Old Testament, under the law, God, God commanded the people to love God with all their heart and to love neighbor as oneself. In fact, Jesus himself said that, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. <clears throat> Basically, all of the requirements of the law are met or are satisfied by these two commandments. In the Old Testament, neighbor included fellow Israelites, right? You know, that's taken for granted. Not just a guy, the Israelite that lived next door, but fellow Israelites, right? Um, <clears throat> And it included the alien who live within God's people, with God's people in the land. So there are some people who are not Israelites, but they are proselytes or they're, they're living there in the land. So there are neighbors as well, right? And that's what the law, the law recognizes there in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus came along and clarified the meaning of neighbor when he taught the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus makes it clear in this parable that our neighbor, our neighbor is anyone around us, regardless of their ethnic, religious, or socioeconomic status. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught <clears throat> that neighbor extended even to our enemy. He says, love your enemies. <laughs> um, in fact, those when he spoke that in that day, they, those, some of those hearing it probably weren't too happy about that because they were under a Roman occupation and they didn't particularly want to love being there, <laughs> right? So, um, and, but Jesus didn't just stop there. By his lifestyle, he showed that tax collectors, and sinners, all those people, were also neighbors. Uh, Jesus explained the meaning of the command to love one another by, what was he doing? He was removing man-made obstacles and by, reve- you know, and by revealing the true intent and purpose of this commandment, which is to love others, as he loved us, thereby taking the gospel of Christ to everyone so that they may have the opportunity to, to experience his love through us. But what was there was still something new about Jesus' commandment. He extended the meaning of neighbors and all that kind of stuff. But his commandment to his disciples, he was calling them and us to a higher standard of love as well. One based on the example of himself, the Lord Jesus Christ Christ himself, laying down his own life for them. Jesus loved his own, he tells us, I think it's in John 13, I believe. He loved his own to the highest degree, to the uttermost. And he calls us to do the same, and that's exemplified by him. Remember, he washed the disciples' feet, and he says, go and do likewise, right? And ultimately, though, to the cross, where he laid down his life for them and us. In his commentary on the the passage in the Gospel of John, John MacArthur says this, the love which John and Jesus talks about is not the kind of love we see demonstrated in contemporary society today. The modern world's version of love is unabashedly narcissistic, totally self-focused, and shamelessly manipulative. It sees others merely merely as a means of self-gratification. In sharp contrast to that self-centered kind of love, the Bible teaches that the essence of love is self-sacrifice. Instead of tearing others down, biblical love seeks to build them up. Instead of first pursuing its own good, it pursues the good and interests of others. Instead of seeking, to have its own needs met, it seeks to meet the needs of others. That is true love. Vines, um, in in, in the complete expository dictionary of the Old and the New Testament, he describes love in this way. He says, Christian love has God for its primary object and expresses itself, first of all, in implicit obedience to his commandments. Christian love, whether exercised towards the brethren or towards men generally, is not an impulse from the feelings. It does not always run with the natural inclination, nor does it spend itself only upon those for whom some affinity is discovered. Love seeks the welfare of all and works no ill to any, Love seeks opportunity to do good to all men and of course especially towards them that are of the household of faith. So John says in First John <clears throat> chapter 2, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him There is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. John says that this is another way we know then whether or not we're, we have genuine faith. We're in the faith. If we have love one for another, but it's not love the way we tend to define love. right? It's the way the Bible defines love. 1 John 3, verse 14, this is the next chapter, says we know that we have passed out of death into, into life. least one of the ways we know is because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love, abides in death. This kind of love which Jesus commands, and John is talking about, that they command his disciples to have for one another, and which, uh, as I said, John is talking about, it is impossible for us. Do you realize that? Unless we have experienced his love as we have placed faith in him and are born again. And that's one of the reasons John is saying, if you don't love, you you don't know God. Because it's impossible for anyone to love God in this manner, except that he's truly born again. With the new birth, God's love was shed abroad, or he says, poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us, right? the pouring out of God's love in our hearts speaks of God's love for us. This is a transformative love which produces in us love for God and love for others via divine empowerment by the Holy Spirit. Hence, John says in his letter that we love because God first loved us. and That brings us then to point number three. Genuine faith, genuine belief in Christ results in not loving the world. John just kind of keeps going and pouring it on, right? (laughs) He could have stopped with, you know, you just, you know, love one another and you're good. But he says, no, that's not the only thing. Not loving the world. How about that? So we need to understand a little bit about what that means. So we see that in verses 15 through 17. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Up to this point in the letter, John has been addressing his readers about what they are to love. They should love God, they should love Christ, love the brethren by extension, love the unbeliever, love our enemies, all these things. But for his third point, John employs the negative statement, do not love the world or the things which are in the world." <clears throat> the word love, which John uses here, is actually the same term he uses when he speaks of loving the brethren. And You might have thought, well, maybe he's using a different word. No, he's using the same word. In his commentary on this passage, Simon Kistermaker, if I'm pronouncing it right, says that the love which John has in mind is that of attachment, intimate fellowship, loyal devotion. That's the kind of love that God demands in the summary of the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor. We shouldn't love the world that way, though, should we? Unfortunately, (laughs) many people find themselves doing that. John is here warning his his readers, including us, against loving the world and that which is in it. He's not suggesting we Christians should abandon the world or to live in seclusion. That may be one way we think. I won't love the world if I do that. (laughs) In a sense, probably still loving the world doing that. Um, The focus is not that the Christian separate himself from the world, but rather that he should keep himself from the love of the world. Sounds very similar, really, to Jesus' prayer to the disciples in John 17, right? Where he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So in verse 17 of what we just read, really we find a key to not loving the world, is to be sanctified in the truth of God's word. Let us continue to set us apart unto Christ for his purposes that way we won't love the world, <laughs> right? So this raises an important question. What is John's definition of the world <laughs> and the things in it which Christians are not to love? That probably kind of came to your mind as well, I'd imagine, because the world is it's out there. You know? There are a lot of things to like about the world. I mean, we enjoy and so forth. So, let's talk a little bit about what he's not saying. See, God created the heavens and the earth, and he was quite pleased with His creation. In fact, creation declared his glory and shows his handiwork. Those things we should marvel at, we should have great appreciation for, we should enjoy we should teach our children about that, all these things. But we are not to get too carried away with them (laughs) to where we worship those things rather than worship God. Um, John is also not referring to all the things in the world which are ordained by God. So there are people then, back then, and even today, that would argue that you shouldn't get married or that's evil, you know, or whatever it is, engaging in business or, in, you know, engaging in state affairs, in politics, all these things. There's a whole host of other things which some Christians may consider worldly, but that's not what he's talking about. <clears throat> so what does John mean by the world and the things in it? Well. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way in his book entitled Walking with God, Studies in 1st John. So you should have this in your outline. It says clearly the, the very text and the whole teaching of the Bible shows that it must mean the organization and the mind and the outlook as it, as it ignores God and does not recognize him and as it lives a life independent of him, a life that is based upon this world and this life only. It means the outlook that has rebelled against God and turned its back upon him. It means, in other words, the typical kind of life that is being lived by the average person today, who has no thought of God, but thinks only of this world and life. He thinks in terms of time and is governed by certain instincts and desires. It is the whole outlook upon life that is exclusive of God. So what characterizes this kind of life? Excuse me. John tells us in First John verse 16, he says, the desires, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those are the things. So what are they? Again, how does the Bible define them? Right, Because we tend to put our own um, definition on those things as well too. Um, <clears throat> The lust of the flesh is here speaking about the abuse of certain natural instincts and desires which are common to human human nature and life. And that includes things like eating and drinking, sex. These are natural instincts taken to the extreme. This kind of person lives only for sensual gratification. Covetousness also falls in this category. It's it's an insatiable um, desire for worldly gain. Covetousness is an extreme, unsatisfiable desire to find fulfillment and meaning and purpose in things instead of God. This spirit of covetousness very often leads to a ton of other sins, which we won't get into this morning. So that's the lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes speak to the greedy longings of the mind and living according to false values, which delights in appearance and outward show. It is vanity which delights in pomp and splendor and appearance and anything which appeals to the eye. The pride of life speaks of boastful self-glorification. It speaks of pride in one's self generally at the expense of others. It manifests itself in many ways such as pride in our own influence people we know, our (laughs) bloodlines, social status, wealth, material possession, plus a whole host of other things. What's common in all of these things? None of these things have anything to do with one's soul and spirit and for for sure nothing to do with God and his honor and glory. So the question why does John provide such strong command to Christians about not loving the world and the things in it If John <clears throat> if John has in mind our love for the father such as such a love is un- incompatible with love of the world and the things in it. Love for the world and love for the Father cannot exist side by side. We either is going to love one and hate the other or vice versa. But we cannot love both the Father and the world at the same time. It just doesn't, doesn't work. If John has in mind God's love which has been poured out in, her, in the believer's heart, and again he's talking about loving the world, right? If that's the love he's, he's talking about, the same conclusion is reached. His love is not compatible with love for the world or the things in it. So if we find ourselves loving the world and the things in it in the way which John describes it, that could be an indication that the person is not truly saved and does not know God. And probably often is an indication of that. But you know another possible reason why John may address this with such strong command is is that he's providing, is that there may be people hearing the message and realizing that their lifestyle is not consistent with the great gospel of their salvation, and they wake up, run to Christ, confess their sins, and be restored to fellowship with Him, as He exhorts us to do in the first chapter of First John. So in, in, in closing this morning, Let's reflect briefly then on what we discussed. There there are these three points. And the worship theme could start coming back up if you'd like to do so. So the the three points were God, uh, I'm sorry, genuine belief in Christ results in God's love perfected in us as evidenced by keeping his commandments. Number two, um, genuine belief in Christ results in love of the brethren. Third, genuine belief in Christ results in not loving the world. So having heard the message, question for us then, are there some areas which you recognize in your life which you need to grow in? It could be in the area of abiding more in the Lord's teaching by walking in greater obedience to the truths you already know. It could be growing in your love for others. We all need to grow in that, for sure, right? <clears throat> Particularly, though, how about this one, those who you don't get along so well with. It's kind of easier to, you know, Hey, I, we, you know, I love my good buddy here, and so forth. But how about those that maybe you're not so fond of? We we need to love those people according to God's word, right? Or it could be in the area of loving the world, and the things which are in it. We find ourselves being so greatly attractive, attracted to things that are in the world, that are beyond what one would normally be attracted to in terms of meeting your common needs to live in this world. Right? It's way beyond that. Um, well, John would have us all remember what he said in the first two verses of chapter 2. He says, my little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Because all these things, you know, are in a way sin. (laughs) Uh, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, remember we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Billy touched on that a little bit last week, and so I'm not going to say too much more about that. But think about this. His advocacy with the Father, Jesus, includes him making intercession for us that our faith would not fail. But he's also praying that God's love would be perfected in us as we walk in obedience to His commandments, do you know that He's praying for that too? Also, remember that if we do sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <clears throat> so, if we need prayer for any of these things or other needs you have, or prayer team, and I'm not sure who to prayer team is this morning, but our prayer team is here to talk with you and pray with you. For those who don't yet have a relationship with Christ, perhaps today you sense in your heart that something needs to change. And you now have a desire to turn your life over to Christ. Prayer team is also available to that. And there are leaders as well as perhaps the person you're sitting next to another church member who knows Christ, could talk. you could talk with those people. Um, and if you're visiting this morning, I think Christian mentioned this earlier, um, and would like to talk to one of her leaders, I would be happy to do so in the East Warrior, which is over here.